Well, good evening. Uh, it's, it's really um, my privilege to be able to share tonight. And uh, just as we sang, um, isn't it great that God knows us by name? But how much greater that we can be known by God's name to one another? And that should be said of all of us. And just kind of let that sink in. How are we known? Are we known by God's name? Well, tonight, I just want you to kind of think. Here's um, kind of a question. How many of you have admired famous people? It may be a celebrity known for their acting or good looks, someone with incredible talent as an artist, singer, or musician, or perhaps an athlete with tremendous skill applied to their sport. Sure, we all have. These people are known for what makes them great. But in order to be great, they had to do the things to make them great. Now, obviously, none of these people were born that way. They came into the world just like any of us did as ordinary human beings with the potential for greatness. The potential for greatness. But in recognizing that potential, and often initially pointed out by a loving parent or caring teacher, recognizing their potential, these people realized their potential and did what was necessary to achieve the greatness for which they are known. Thus, they went from ordinary to extraordinary. Well, tonight I'm going to talk about how each of us can go from ordinary to extraordinary as we begin a new four-part series of messages on Wednesday night called Meet Me at the Manger. We're going to look at people in the nativity narrative, common, ordinary people, and show how God used them and how God can and will use each of us to achieve extraordinary things for him. Our first character in this series is Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, there is little said about Joseph in the Bible, and really no words are attributed to him. In essence, he was just a common, ordinary man. So what made him so special? Who was he, and what can we learn from him? Well, in your handouts, you see that uh, we have Matthew 1, 18 through 25. So I'm going to read that. You can follow along. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Now we can see many things about Joseph in this narrative, but really before any of this even took place, we must consider one thing. And that is first, Joseph was chosen. Joseph was chosen by God. We see in Matthew 28 and 21, 
Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, and you are to name him Jesus. See, God chose Joseph just as God chose Mary to bear his son Jesus. God chose Joseph to be his earthly father, and Joseph was chosen to name him Jesus. But one other thing we see here is that the angel addresses Joseph as son of David. And why is that important? Well, Jesus, the Messiah, was foretold to be born as a descendant of King David. In Matthew's gospel, his readers were of a Jewish audience, and, and he begins his gospel proving that Jesus is of the line of David and the patriarchs from whom the Messiah would descend. In fact, in the very beginning, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. In Luke's gospel, Joseph is mentioned in, in Jesus' genealogy, being traced all the way back to Adam, the first man, thus proving Jesus' humanity. So it's no accident that Joseph just happened to be able to trace his lineage to King David. God would fulfill his prophecy. But certainly there were other men who could be directly related to King David. So why Joseph? Again, he was an ordinary man. Well, let me ask you a question. How many have felt inferior to another person growing up because they were privileged or had some other unique advantage that you did not have? Right? Like playing on a soccer team when a teammate is the coach's son? Or having a classmate who is the daughter of the teacher or um, being in the cast or choir? You know, it wasn't surprising that the director's son or daughter um, would be among the best singers and actors in the musical theater. But no matter which of the three A's they excelled in, athletics, academics, or the arts, there's no question that these students had an advantage. Just because they were chosen to sing a solo in choir or to play starter on the team or to answer in class, it doesn't mean that the other students were not afforded the same opportunity. They may have been privileged because of the family in which they grew up, because of a parent who invested in them and shared the meal. But they were given much, but much more was expected from them. Jesus once handed out a number of talents, each to different people. And at the end, he says, to whom much is given, much is required. So don't think these privileged people had it easy, because to, much, to whom much is given, much is also required. In fact, more likely than not, these supposed privileged students had to work twice as hard for their parent because twice as much was expected from them. If they were born into a family of athletes and they had a natural hereditary gift for running fast, well, then it should be expected that they would be a fast runner. But it will only be that way if that student applies himself. If they just decide they're just going to play video games, they'll never amount to that fast runner that they could have been. Now, we, in a sense, are also privileged. You may think, well, how am I privileged? I'm not born in royalty. I don't have a lineage of kings or have any remarkable family. I'm just ordinary. Well, I have good news for you. Because regardless of your genealogy or what family you were born into, when you accept Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you are born again. Born into his family with all the privileges that come with it. And as adopted children of God, we must be led of the Holy Spirit. Read what it says in Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. 
So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as your own, as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. So now we're born again into the family of God. Now we are children. Remember how those so-called privileged kids were born into talented families and, and had to work to realize their potential by applying the gifts inherited to them? Well, the same goes for us as children of God. We must be led by the Spirit of God. It says right in the for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. That sounds pretty conditional. It's expected of us to be led by the Spirit. It means living a Christ-centered, spirit-filled life that seeks to honor God in all that we do and say. But just as every adopted son or daughter is literally chosen by their parents, we too, as adopted children of God, have been chosen by God. And now we are, in a sense, born into royalty. We're part of his royal family. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says, For you are a chosen people. God chose us. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of his darkness into his wonderful light. Amen? We're born into royalty now. We're holy priests. We're chosen by God, chosen people. Now, while it's true that God has chosen us, he has chosen us with a purpose. After all, who chooses something by accident? It's a contradiction. Everything chosen is with intent. Therefore, God chose us for a reason, for a purpose. And what is that? Well, we just read it. So that you can show others the goodness of God. So if he's chosen us for a purpose, and that purpose is to show others the goodness of God, are we doing that? Are we showing people the goodness of God by, by how we walk, by how we talk? by the things we do and things we choose not to do. Now again, your dad is the coach, presuppose some expectations, and the same goes with Father God. Because it says, be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children, we're children of God, be imitators of God. You see how they go together. And then in Philippians 2, 14 and 15, it says, Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Boy, shining like bright lights in darkness. That sounds pretty extraordinary to me. But it's the light of Christ within us that we allow to shine from us that makes all the difference. So let's come back to Joseph. We read in our opening passage that Joseph is described as a righteous man. So number two, Joseph was righteous. See, Joseph lived by a careful observance of the law. He understood that the punishment for a woman promised to be married who had lost her virginity was the punishment of death. And Joseph could have made a spectacle of her, but he didn't want to be harsh. He didn't want to, to bring shame and an open scandal of her and her family. Another translation refers to Joseph as being just 
translates righteous as just. For Joseph knew he could no longer marry her, but he loved her, and he had mercy upon her, and he didn't want her punished. So he intended to divorce her secretly and send her away privately. Psalm 37, 21 says the righteous person is compassionate. He showed compassion. And like Joseph, God wants us to live a righteous life, full of love, mercy, and compassion. Remember, as children of God, we are to be imitators of God. And isn't God known as love? God is love. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Wow. I see an expectation there. We see that God has chosen us, and he's done so with a purpose. He also intends that we be righteous and holy, for it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. But now let's back up. Because it says this, as obedient children. Well, children ought to be obedient, amen? I mean, pastor just preached on Sunday from Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honor your father and mother, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2. And remember, since Paul is speaking to believers in Ephesus, the phrase, in the Lord, is referring to Christian parents or believing parents. But if children are to obey earthly parents, albeit Christian, yet still fallible, how much more should we, as children of God, obey our heavenly parent, our heavenly father, who is indeed perfect? Again, if earthly children are to obey their earthly parents, how much more are we as children of God supposed to obey our heavenly father? And that brings me to our next point concerning Joseph. Joseph was obedient. We see this in our opening text as, as well as further in Matthew's gospel. Joseph was obedient to the angel in his first dream by marrying Mary and naming Jesus. He could have not done that, but he did because he was obedient. Joseph was obedient to the Roman decree by traveling all the way to Bethlehem, his birthplace, for the census, even with Mary being as pregnant as she was. He could have said, are you kidding me? She can give birth at any time. I'm not going to walk those 75 miles all the way to Bethlehem. But he did. He was obedient. Joseph was obedient to the angel in his second dream, telling him to flee to Egypt when Herod sought to kill Jesus. And in a third dream, to return to Israel. And finally, in a fourth dream, to not go back to Judea, rather to Galilee in a town called Nazareth, which fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Joseph was also obedient to the law of Moses, having Jesus circumcised on the eighth day and presented to the temple as a baby with the required offerings. In Luke 2.39, we read, When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. Get that. Had fulfilled all, not some, not the ones they felt like, not the ones that were convenient, all the requirements of the law. That takes obedience. In addition, we read in Luke 2.41, every year 
Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Every year. Every year. You see, Joseph was more than a believer. He was a doer. It was one thing to know to go to Jerusalem, but it was quite another to make the five-day walk of around 78 miles through the wilderness. And it's hard sometimes to come to church on Sunday. It's hard sometimes to come to church on midweek service, and we don't walk five days, 78 miles through the wilderness. But Joseph was obedient. He was more than a believer. He was a doer. James is clear on this. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourselves. And he also says further in chapter 4, remember it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Well, sin's a pretty powerful word. Well, I ought to read the Bible, but yeah, I don't feel like it. I ought to go to church, but mm, nah, I'd rather sleep in. I ought to pray, but there's a lot of things that we ought to do that we need to be doers of and not just know that we ought to do them. After all, if God has chosen us, and he has, and called us with a purpose, and he has, shouldn't he expect that we be obedient? Amen? And isn't it good to know that to whom God calls, he also equips? Each of us have been given spiritual gifts as Christians to fulfill the ministry to which God has called us. And gifts are unique to purpose. If I provide my daughter Melody with a pair of scissors to clip coupons and fill up with a lawnmower to cut the grass, then I'm equipping them with the task that I'm asking them to do. I'm equipping them with what is necessary. I wouldn't expect Philip to use a pair of scissors to cut the grass. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. <laughs> but when I ask him to mow the lawn, just because I provide him with a lawnmower, he still must be obedient to mowing the lawn, right? It's not enough that I provide him with a lawnmower. It's not enough that he knows he should do it. He must be a doer and not a hearer only. He must be obedient. In the summer before my senior year in high school, I attended uh, Interlochen uh, Music Camp up near Traverse City as part of the All-State Jazz Band. And we were privileged to have Wynton Marcellus and his brother Bradford Marcellus join us one day. It was pretty awesome sitting next to Bradford Marcellus, you know, playing music and then hearing him tell you, right on, after you do an improvised solo. <laughs> But Wynn Marcellus, if you don't know, is one of the greatest trumpet players of our day, having mastered both classical and jazz music. Um, as he spoke to us, he told us his, his story, and he credited his father, a very skilled musician himself, for his influence in teaching his sons and ensuring that they were diligent to practice, practice, practice. But not many people know the name Ellis Marcellus. But without, a, without his father, without an Ellis there would not have been a Winton, he said. He said, without an Ellis, there would not be a Winton. And he said that over and over. And the Marcellus family were as ordinary as, ordinary as anyone else. They grew up in a very poor neighborhood. But by applying themselves, they achieved the extraordinary. And he's one of the most 
recorded trumpeters ever. Now, a couple of things he taught us besides of jazz and music, but one of the things that I'll remember, he says, if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying. A lot of us are afraid to make mistakes, and as a, as a self-proclaimed um, admitting professionist, it's difficult for me too. But, but you try. But this was one of the things that, that really stuck out. He says, the best way to be is to do. He said, the best way to be is to do. It reminds me of what we learned in physics. An object at rest is said to have potential energy. And an object in motion is said to have kinetic energy. Now, every one of us has potential. But unless we become a doer, as James says, that potential is wasted and never becomes the kinetic energy that God expected when he gave it to us in the first place. How many of us would want to stand before God and say, God, I wasted what you gave me? Wow, that's hard. Because it only remained potential because it was never fulfilled in motion. I knew to do it, but I didn't. I sat on it like the person who took the talent and buried it under the rock that potential was wasted. The potential for that coin to gain interest was wasted. And that interest was never realized. And then he made the excuse, oh, well, you're a harsh man. The lesson is the potential in that coin. The potential was wasted. Why did the master say, well, you could have put it in the bank and at least received interest? Because that interest was the realization of the potential in that coin, that potential that was never realized. And all of us are like that coin. If we're not a doer, then that potential that God has given us is wasted. And may it never be thought of us that we wasted what God has given us. Think of a roller coaster car at the top of the first hill. You're going up, chicka, 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 chicka. You can see all of Lake Erie. You can see the Rensen. You can see the curvature of the Earth. You can see the Tubble Telescope. No, just kidding. <laughs> you get to the top of the hill, and the roller coaster stops and just sits there. And you're in that roller coaster car right at the top of the hill but you stay in one place and you don't move. That's pretty tremendous potential energy, right? How much potential is there, but yet it's sitting there and it's stopped? The potential is huge. When it starts moving downhill, there's no stopping it. Well, that roller car is meant to go down that hill, right? It's not meant to go up and stop. Would you agree with that? So if you were inside that roller coaster car and you go up and then you stop and you stay there and you're stuck on that hill and you're not moving 
and you have all this potential, but you're not moving. You have all this potential, huge potential, and you're just sitting there, and you're still sitting there, and minutes go by, and hours go by, and days go by. How would you feel? Frustrated? How do you think God feels when he has given you so much potential and gifts, talents, time, treasure, and like that roller coaster car, you just sit at the top of the hill? What if you were that car and God was in that car? And the thing that he's called you to do is to go down that hill because that car is meant to go down that hill. And he's in the car and he's waiting. And he's waiting. And he looks down and he sees all the people. And he knows how much potential he's given this car. And he sits and he waits and he is patient. Oh, is he patient. Just think what you could accomplish for the kingdom of God if you just moved a little. Even an inch. That inch would become two, and then a foot, and then a yard. You'd crest over the top of that hill, and you'd build momentum, and momentum, and momentum, and you'd go faster and faster, and yes, that's what God wants. Right? And he'll give you that little nudge if you don't resist him and settle for a complacent Christianity where the only thing that identifies you as a believer is that you come to church once in a while and that's it. Are we reading our Bibles, getting to know our Heavenly Father? Sure, God knows us. How much do we know him? God knows us by name. How much do we know him? Are we, as children of God, obedient are we obedient to pray? Are we obedient to tithe? Are we obedient to serve? You know, physics teaches us another lesson, and it's that of inertia. And it's simply this. An object at rest tends to stay at rest. And an object in motion tends to stay in motion. You know, the joke we heard in inertia, about inertia was, what's more difficult, to stop a moving locomotive on its tracks or to move a lazy man from his couch. Now, I'm not saying that any of us are lazy by any means. However, if we're not careful, we can become spiritually lazy. When it comes to, oh, what the Bible says about praying unceasingly, or about reading our Bible daily, or coming to church weekly, or tithing regularly. You see, if you've not read your Bible in the last month, how likely, are you willing, how likely are you to read it tomorrow? If you haven't prayed since last week Thursday, how likely are you to pray before you go to bed tonight? If you've not invited one person to church in the last year, how likely are you to invite someone to this Sunday service? 
because an object at rest tends to stay at rest. But an object in motion tends to stay in motion. So if you read your Bible and you pray tomorrow and set an alarm on your phone if you need to so that you know you'll make time for it and you know, okay, at this time I got time, I'm making time for God and, you know, hey Siri, set an alarm for um, 9.30 tomorrow and, you know, there you go. And you do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And just like that roller coaster, you build momentum. So now, as that roller coaster goes down that hill, it has so much kinetic energy that when it has to go uphill, how many know it's more difficult to go uphill? But you've built up so much momentum and so much kinetic energy that now you can travel uphill. So when you realize the potential that God's given you, you can get through the tough times in life. You can get through going uphill because you were obedient to God's will going down the first hill, taking that first step. And then you build more momentum. You never are on a roller coaster over the first hill and you're going and you're going up and down, up and down, and then you kind of slow down and then go backwards. That doesn't happen. In fact, you have so much momentum that at the end of the ride, there has to be air brakes to go and stop you. Right? I won't do that again. <laughs> but you get that jolt, okay, and then whiplash, right? Without those air brakes, you would be unstoppable. That roller coaster would go on and on and on and on. Because that's what it was meant to do. That's what it was engineered to do. It wasn't meant to stop. We stopped it. And when God calls us and we are obedient, the only person that can stop it is us. So we must make the choice to take the first step to get down that first hill. And then we must make the subsequent choice to not stop. Because if you say, I'm going to read my Bible tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. before I go to work for 15 minutes, and I do it the next day and 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 the next day, and you are building momentum, guess what? Who is the only person that can stop that momentum. Right. You can put those air brakes on and you can say, no, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to get off the ride. God doesn't want you to get off the ride. This life that we're living, this Christian journey, this adventure that we're on is meant to go on as long as we have breath in us and God calls us home. We have that purpose to continue so build that momentum so you can go uphill. And I promise you, you won't find yourself going backwards because to whom God calls, he equips. If you're obedient, you will have all the kinetic energy that you need. God will never give you more than you can handle. That means you never have to worry about a hill that you can't scale because you're doing it in his strength by the power of the Spirit that keeps you propelled do you see anybody like Flint Flintstone on a roller coaster with their feet going like this? No, because they're not the ones making that car go. 
if they were, they'd have a hard time trying to, with their feet, moving that roller coaster up the hill. Of course not. Okay? So it's not in our strength. It's not in our power. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we must be obedient to realize that. So, if you're like that roller coaster, you'll build momentum. And that's the same thing with inviting your coworker or the cashier at the grocery store or anyone else you meet. Inviting them to church or, or sharing your personal life story. If, if you're hesitant or you feel awkward, know this. The second person is easier than the first. And the third person is easier than the second. And so on and so on. And you build momentum. And pretty soon, all of Woodhaven and Brownstown has been invited to Woodland in one way or another by one person or another. And not all will come, but boy, wouldn't it be awesome if we knew that everyone was invited? Just think about that. What if every single person was invited? We wouldn't be able to fit everyone for one thing, and we know that not everyone would come. Some people already go to another church, and that's fine. But should there be anyone in our community who has not had an invitation? And it's very simple to do. Or maybe it's something before a service. Maybe it's like our Christmas um, production um, where they get to hear lots of great musical pieces and, um, or our Christmas Eve service is a very great way to invite someone to church. But make the invitation. Build that momentum. The last thing I want to mention about Joseph is this. Joseph was remembered. Now, though no words of Joseph are mentioned in Scripture, he is still referenced outside the Christmas narrative. In Matthew 13, 54, 56, we read, He returned to Nazareth, his hometown, Jesus, that is, returned to Nazareth, his hometown. When he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, Where does he get this wisdom and the power to do miracles? Then they scoffed, He's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, all his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? See, ordinary Joseph is remembered in an extraordinary way because Jesus himself is identified with him. Jesus is identified with him. In fact, it's from this very passage that we infer that Jesus himself was a carpenter because, you know, all sons in that day learned to work the same trade as their fathers. And not only did sons learn to work their father's trade, they were known by their father's name. We read of Simon, son of Jonah, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and so on. John, in his gospel, calls Jesus son of God. And he does so to emphasize Jesus' divinity. Luke, in his gospel, calls Jesus son of man to emphasize his humanity. But unlike other men in the Bible, Jesus is not called son of Joseph. In fact, when Luke begins his genealogy of Jesus, he is careful in chapter 3, verse 23, to write, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. But the fact that Jesus was identified with Joseph is a remarkable thing. And we just sang the song, You're a Good, Good Father. And as children of God, Jesus is our Father. 
We also sang that he knows us by name. And I began, I began this evening by asking us the question, we know God knows us by name, but do other people, not only in this church, but in our surrounding community, know us by Jesus' name? See, when we were told to be obedient, we were to make him known. We were to show his light in the darkness. And in order to make Jesus known, we must be known as followers of Jesus. Amen? We must be known by his name. You know, there's a lot of surnames that we, that we have that um, it's like Benson or Stevenson, um, son of Stephen, son of Ben. Um, you know, there's different uh, prefixes like O'Connor, which meant son of Connor. Um, or in German, you might see V-O-N, you know, designating, um, you know, the son of. Or in Italian, D, uh, D-E, um, like my maternal grandparents, uh, D'Angelo, you know, son of Angelo, and so on. We need to be known as Christian, son of Christ, or daughter of Christ, children of God. We need to be known by his name. And just like some surnames had to do with the occupation, such as Cooper was maker of barrels, and now we just hear the last name Cooper, not really put that together. Smith was a worker of metals. Baker was, well, you get it. Uh, <laughs> but we should be known as Christian not just by who we are, but also by what we do. Because if we're only a Christian on the inside, you know, we're adopted as children of God, but not on the outside, then how will people know? Because when someone's surname was Cooper, you expected them to be a barrel maker. They just, they were known not only by their father, because that was the trade that you were born into, but they were also known by what they did. They made barrels. So we should not only be known as Christian, being of God, being follower of God, being adopted as children of God, but also known by what we do because we're sharing his light. People need to know that we're Christians by who we are and by what we do. And if there are people at your workplace who have no clue that you're a Christian, then you need to change that. You need to change that. It might be a simple invitation to church. It might just come up in a conversation. Christmas time is a great way when someone mentions lights. Oh, yeah, I love the lights in Christmas. And did you know Jesus was born at Christmas? Well, maybe, maybe not that abrupt, but, <laughs> but there are so many creative ways to to find a way to bring Jesus into the conversation and to say, I'm a believer in God. Let me tell you what he's done in my life. And then make a simple invitation to church where they have an opportunity to make a decision for Christ themselves. I added some growth work for you. One, recognize that you are chosen by God for a purpose. Okay, we're all chosen and it's not by accident. Two, live a Christ-centered, spirit-filled life. That's the choice we make. God chooses us, 
Number two is the choice we make. Number three, be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. We have to be obedient. It's not enough that we're given a lawnmower. We need to cut the grass. Remember that God has equipped you to do everything he asks with excellence. I didn't give Philip a pair of scissors to cut the grass. And then five, make Jesus known by being known as a follower of Jesus. Make Jesus known by being known as a follower of Jesus. If you do these things, no matter how ordinary you may think you are, you will go from ordinary to extraordinary. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm close. <laughs>